0: All right, we're continuing in our New Testament survey. Today we're going to be in the book of Mark, looking at an overview of the gospel of Mark. Let's uh, pray as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise your name this morning that we can gather together, that we can dig into your word, that we can fellowship together as the body of Christ, Lord Be with us this morning as we look at your word, show us your truth, teach us what you would have us to know, prepare our hearts even now as we uh, get ready for the main service. Lord, we thank you for all the blessings you give to us. pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as I understand, Pastor Frank has been in the Gospel of Matthew the last couple weeks, and today we're going to be moving on to the Gospel of Mark and just a quick overview of what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the a quick uh, relationships between the gospels, just as a quick overview. Look at the introduction, major themes, purpose, the literary structure, uh, bibliography, and then some selected interpretive problems. So as a quick overview, the relationship between the Gospels. If you look on your handouts or on the screen, you can see that Matthew was written first between the 40s and 50s of the first century, and then Luke, and then Mark was written third. If you look at the purpose between these, you see that Matthew's primary audience was Jewish, and it's a teaching style. Mark is to the Gentiles, evangelistic style. Luke is to the Gentiles with a teaching style, and then John is to the Jews with an evangelistic style. So we have uh, both teaching and evangelism to the Jews and to the Gentiles spread across all the Gospels. And I believe Pastor Frank talked on the synoptic problem. I'm not going to go too deep into that, but um, it is important to note that Mark was written third. So historically, from the 2nd to through the beginning of the 19th century, Mark was a forgotten narrative. Everything in Mark is written uh, in Matthew or Luke, so they didn't really look at it. They looked at the others, the other Gospels. Augustine saw Mark as an abridgment of Matthew, and except for Three paragraphs, everything in Mark is found in Matthew and Luke. And even when Calvin preached through the Gospels at the time in the medieval, or uh, during the Reformation, he blended all the Gospels together and he preached a life of Christ. That's how they would do it. They would do all the Gospels and just preach a life of Christ. The title is According to Mark. That was uh, established between 100 and 125 A.D. Uh, each, Each gospel or each book was known by, you know, who was written by. So this is the gospel according to Mark. And then the author here is John Mark. John Mark. We see him in Acts. We see him in Colossians, Timothy. If you remember, let's go to Acts 12. Acts 12.12 And when... He realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. Okay, so we see that uh, Mark went with Paul, and they split up, and Paul took Barnabas. And then Mark went on to follow Peter. So he was the uh, disciple or companion of Peter. We know that it was probably Mark for several reasons. Mark was familiar with the geography of Palestine. Look in Mark 5, verse 1. He says, They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gesareans. So he knew that this area, Palestine, He was able to pinpoint where it was. The audience would not have known who that was, so he was specific with locations in Palestine. He understood Jewish uh, institutions, instructions, their customs, what they did, and he explained those. If you go to chapter 7. Chapter 7 of Mark, starting in verse 2. And he had seen that some of the, his disciples were eating their bread with him impure hands, that is, unwashed. And then verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless carefully wash their hands. Thus observing the traditions of the elders. Uh, verse 4, And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received... Uh, in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So Mark understands these customs of the Jews. He explains them to his readers. If you remember that, Mark is written to the Gentiles. We'll get more into that. Also, back to chapter 5, and it's in several locations, but chapter 5, verse 41... Mark is understanding, or he uh, explains, the Aramaic language background. Chapter 5, in verse 41, Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, this is when Jesus healed the uh, synagogue official's daughter, Jesus said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately she got up. So, he's explaining these uh, language differences to his readers. And actually, as he wrote, he wrote to the Romans, which we will get to, but as he wrote, he wrote in Greek, but he wrote in a way that they would understand, or he, he wrote in a way that they would understand in their Latin language, right? So, he used Latin Order of words so that they would understand uh, easier in the Greek, if that makes sense. He also had a connection with Peter. We know that he followed Peter. He was with Peter after he left Paul. And if you look in verse 639, or chapter 6, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 39. You see, and he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. The green grass. This is detail of someone that was there. This isn't just secondhand knowledge. This is from someone who was there. It's significant that it's green grass. We see this detail all throughout Mark. He gives gives little snippets of detail like this. In that area the grass was normally brown unless it had just rained or was in the spring where there was rain so it gives this detail it seems little but it tells us that it was probably in the spring so we have this all throughout Uh, you can look up those other references it talks about Peter's words and deeds so it's kind of more from Peter's perspective throughout the gospel, and as you would expect, the portrayal of Peter is more negative than in the other gospels. So, Peter would have had a more negative view of himself, and he, uh, in this, Mark recorded this view of himself, or of Peter, as he wrote. And then one interesting point is chapter 14, Verses 51 and 52. This is is after the betrayal and during the arrest of Jesus. It says, A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. It's kind of a random thing to put in a gospel, right? But this could be where the Holy Spirit led John Mark to give an identity of himself that he was there. Let me give you some background on this. So it's believed that John Mark, John Mark's family, was uh, the family that they met in the upper room. And so when Peter was there, so Peter knew him. And when they met in the upper room, when they were leaving, they went to the garden. Mark could have heard them rustling. Got up, young, very young boy, trying to go see what happened. He just put a put a, uh, a sheet over himself. And when they got arrested, um, he got away. And as Jesus would say, they would all get away. But um, Can't be dogmatic about that, but it kind of could be where Mark is hinting that he was there for that portion. The readers are the Gentiles or the Romans. We talked about how the Jewish customs were explained, the Aramaic expressions were translated. He used Latin terms like executioner, uh, pull tax, coins, and the flog, flogging. And also he used Roman time. Jewish time was different than Roman time. The Jews saw a day from sunset to sunset and so he uses Roman time in his explanations. And also we see this Son of Simon the Serene. Son of Simon the Serene. Chapter 15, verse 21. When Jesus is on his way with the cross, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country Simon of Serene. And then he adds this note, this parenthetical, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And it's interesting that the only other Rufus, if you flip over to Romans, the only other Rufus in Scripture is Romans 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. So, we don't know for certain that it is the same Rufus, but... Rufus was in Rome, this was written to the Romans, so it could be that he put this parenthetical in there because Rufus was well known in the church and they could have, um, they would have known who he was. The date, again, is between AD 65 and 68, somewhere around there. Um, What was going on during that time? Well, the church was being persecuted by Rome. And there was a lot of dispersion of the Jews. And it was, uh, Mark was written so that all these people in, um, all these people in this persecution that are not giving up their faith, that are dying for Christianity, what are we telling all the people who are not believing in that area? This is written to them so they can read and understand why the Christians are dying for their faith. Again, it was written after Matthew and after Luke. Some of the major themes. God is used 49 times. The Father is used four times. Christ is used Only seven times. The Jews had a misunderstanding, and we'll get into this a little more, the Jews had a misunderstanding of who the Messiah was. If you think back, the political culture during that time was the Romans were in charge, and the Jews wanted to be rescued from the Roman power, right? So their idea of the Messiah was that the Messiah was going to come, and overthrow Rome so that the Jews could have their own kingdom. But as we know, that's not why Jesus came the first time, right? He came for sinners. So Christ, the word Christ, is the anointed one, the Messiah. It's not used very often. But it is used at the beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what do we have here? We have the the beginning of this account, the beginning of what happened with Jesus' life, with what he did. Uh, Mark is more of the actions of Christ, whereas Matthew is more of the teaching. And this is what Jesus did while he was here on earth. And then again in verse 11 of chapter 1, Uh, where, I'm sorry, this is where uh, he's talked about the Son of God. Now, moving on, uh, verse 1, he is called, Jesus Christ is called the Son of God. And again, in verse 11, at his baptism, voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And of course, that's uh, the Father speaking. And we have the Son of God used eight times. And Mark is using terminology here that his readers would have understood. His readers would have understood that this man had power. This man had strength from God and that he is the anointed one. He is set apart in some way from humanity. Even with all their Greek philosophy and all their... uh, Religious understanding they would understand that this man is different And Jesus's favorite term is The son of man it's used 14 times And this is Mark's emphasis Each gospel has a little bit of a different emphasis of who Christ is obviously all of them understand Christ as the king all of them understand Christ as the Son of God and fully God, fu- fully man. But Matthew, if you look at the beginning, what does it begin with? Matthew? It begins with the gene- genealogy, right? So this establishes that Jesus is the king through the ge- genealogy, uh, through the line of David. And Mark, Mark's emphasis, if you go, Matthew is king, come over to Mark. He's the servant. Christ is the servant of Yahweh. That's why he came. And he uses this term, son of man. It's a humble term that uh, Christ came to do the work of Yahweh on the earth. And just to finish them out, Matthew king, Mark servant, and you go down here to Luke, Luke shows the humanity of Christ, and then up here, John shows the deity of Christ. It's just to uh, fill those all out. And Mark doesn't have very much uh, quotes from the Old Testament, but in verse 2 and 3, he's quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah. It says, Behold, I send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So as I just said, Mark shows the genealogy line to establish Christ as king. But to the Gentiles, someone would go before and announce the king is coming. So Mark, in his own way, uh, announces that Christ is the king by quoting from the uh, prophet. And John the Baptist is this person who goes ahead to announce Christ as the king. How it would work is they would have messengers who go ahead, they would make sure that the roads are clear, make sure that the roads are not full of washouts, they would make sure that everybody is aware that the king is coming, and they would make ready, they would make straight the way. And so, Mark is doing this with uh, introducing John the Baptist as well. And we have this idea, well, it's it's explicit, the gospel. Verse 1 again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Again, in verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God. Verse 15, and he's saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is both the message of the good news and he's also the messenger of the good news. So Jesus Christ is here on earth. He's the servant of Yahweh. We need to listen to him. We need to believe in him because he has this message for us that is the gospel. He is the gospel. And Mark is establishing this at the very beginning of his gospel. And then chapter 14, verse 9 says, truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the world, this is uh, the, the woman who put perfume on Christ. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. So Jesus came. He is the gospel. He has the message of the gospel. And he expects that when he leaves, the gospel will go out into the world. He looks ahead. This good news will be proclaimed to the entire world. And then we have this kingdom of God idea here as well. Chapter 15, verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom. So they understood that the kingdom was not here yet. The kingdom has drawn near. Jesus was here. But it's still viewed as the future. And with that, we have the kingdom of God. But we see also throughout Mark this power of Satan. This power of Satan. Chapter 1 verse 13 begins this. Christ was baptized and then immediately he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So we have this adversary to Christ even at the beginning. And we also have unclean spirits. Actually, let's look at um, chapter 3, Verse 23 as well, Um, where Christ talks about this, and he called them to himself, and he began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? So he has this adversary. Even the Pharisees are against him. And we have these unclean spirits right after Christ cast out this spirit. And the Roman world was well aware of this unseen reality. They knew there were spirits. They knew there was the spiritual realm. And they knew that there was demons who would oppose what is good. They would oppose what is right. And these demons are mentioned throughout as well. They would have been viewed with fear by the Romans. Romans would have been afraid of the demons. Also, we have throughout these miracles of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 34. Says, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. Again, in chapter 3, verse 10. For he had healed many, with the result that all who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. So we have this picture in Mark of Christ always being busy, he's always healing. He's always got people around him pushing in on him, and he can't get away. I'm teaching the youth, and we're seeing this. Christ is out on the beach, and he's preaching. He's teaching constantly, healing. People are always pushing in on him because they want to be healed. Do they want the message? Do they want to understand who Christ is? No, they just want to be healed. But that's why he came. He came. To heal. It's interesting that there are 19 miracles recorded in the book of Mark. Uh, The MacArthur Study Bible at the beginning of Mark, if you have that, lists all the miracles. I think there's 37 of them, and he puts them all in each gospel and lines them up. But in Mark, 16 of the 19 miracles are recorded. In chapter 114 to 830, the first half of the book contains 16 out of the 19 miracles. Why did Christ come? He's the servant of Yahweh who came to do what Yahweh has for him to do on the earth. And then we have this uh, ideas of faith as well. Chapter 1, verse 15. Again, in saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And again, in 15.32. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. So we have this rejection of the gospel throughout And he's establishing that it's not enough just to see what Jesus is doing. It's not enough just to see what Jesus was saying. These things need to lead to faith. And not just faith in what he did, faith in the person that did these things. Faith in Jesus because of who he is, because of what he said. We have a continual opposition to Jesus and his death. This starts in chapter 1, verse 13, when he goes into the wilderness after his baptism. You see he's tempted by Satan. Chapter 1, verse 14, if you see, now John had been taken into custody. This is literally delivered up to be arrested. The same word was used about Jesus' death.
1: I've got, got a few questions at this point. Why did Jesus go in the wilderness, and why did God give him angels to do that? It's sort of like, kind of like a protection squad. And the second question is, why did Jesus keep telling people not to tell anybody, but then when the lepers went out and told everybody, what happened after that? We'll
0: get to that. Yeah. Jesus went and... We'll get to that. All right. Um, Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan to show that he is fully man. He was tempted in every way that we can be tempted, without sin.
1: But he had angels with
0: him. Sure, he had angels taking care of
1: him. Yeah, that was that. Was,
0: so I don't know. Is that is that an example that we're going to have angels when we're
1: tempted, or is it? The angels are after, right? The angels yeah. coming in
0: so the the way the wording is there were angels throughout but um, but they did definitely come at the end but the Bible also says that we always have a way of escape God provides a way of escape right so we don't have to sin for a believer okay but we will get to the messianic secret that's one of the interpretive issues all right, so this delivered up idea. Chapter 9. Flip over to chapter 9 real quick. Verse 31. For he was teaching uh, his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he who has been killed, he will rise three days later. Chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off the chief, uh, chief priest in order to betray him. 15, verse 1, Early in the morning, the chief priests, with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, immediately held uh, consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. And again in verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. So this is the same word used throughout. We have this shadow of death throughout the first 15 chapters, which what? It culminates in Jesus' death and of course his resurrection in chapter 16. This opposition is from the Pharisees. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. You can look at that. The, Christ was in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He heals this man. And the Pharisees are against him. Verse, uh, verse 6, The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with Her- the Herodians against him. As to how they might destroy him. So Satan is against him. The Pharisees are against him. And this is the illusion in the first part of Mark's gospel that Christ is going to be uh, delivered. He's going to die. And in chapter 8 and on, Christ makes that clear. He makes it clear that he is going to die. Chapter 8, verse 31 and on. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Chapter 9, verse 31 and on. For He was teaching His disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. In chapter 10, verse 32 and on. They were on the road... Going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who were following were fearful. And he took, uh, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. So he's headed to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. He's trying to explain it to them, and the disciples just don't understand. So it comes, this opposition comes first from Satan. It comes from the religious leaders, specifically the, tri- the scribes in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Where the paralytic is healed and he tells them that their sins are forgiven. And then the Pharisees uh, start conspiring with the Herodians, which are those associated politically with Herod and continually in chapter 15. And even the disciples don't understand who he was significantly. Chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus asked them, He said to them, Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? It's, the disciples who are His followers. They're with Him every day. They are part of the way. This word is used uh, as, as Christ goes, but as Christ teaches them, they're following Him. They're with Him. And they're learning from Him continually. We have the disciples who were picked up in chapter 1 from the beginning, as with Matthew. Verses 16 through 20, we have the four fishermen who were uh, called by Christ. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Levi, Matthew is called. And then chapter 3, 16 through 19, the twelve disciples. And why did Christ call the disciples? Is in verses 14 and 15. Of chapter 3. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. So the purpose was so that the message could go on, the gospel could be spread across the whole world. The purpose of Mark. This is the uh, purpose I wrote for my assignment for Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, the good news is proclaimed through the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, as the suffering servant. While Israel rejected, mocked, beat, and crucified the Son of God who was raised from the dead, and will someday be coming in the clouds with great power and glory. <coughs> Dr. Essex summarizes it in, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and therefore should be followed. Christ is the Son of Man. He is the servant of Yahweh. He has been put here to do the work of Yahweh. Believe in Him. You need to follow Him. You need to trust in Him. If you look at your last page, See the the outline of Mark? I don't expect you to read this on the screen, so that's why I gave you the outline. The literary structure is more of a geographical in nature. Chapter 1, he's in Judea, uh, 1 through 13. And then he moves to Galilee from middle of chapter 1 to chapter 9. Chapter 10, he's in Perea. And then 11 and on, he's in Jerusalem. A bibliography, if you would like to study more into Mark, we have props. Uh, The Gospel of Mark by Dr. Hebert. Um, you can pick that up, Amazon, anywhere. I don't think we have it in the bookstore. But this is, a, this is an excellent commentary on Mark if you'd like to get more into Mark. Or uh, the Mark MacArthur New Testament Commentary Series, Volumes 5 and 6 as well. Good resources on Mark if you'd like to dive in a little more. Alright, Selected Interpretive Problems. What is the purpose of Mark? So Mark, again, was not really uh, delved into the last, until the last about 150 years. And the reason for that is there was a German scholar who decided that Mark was written first, which is wrong. But because of that, a lot more people started diving into Mark and doing a lot more work on Mark. And what uh, they came up with was several questions. Was it the purpose of Mark to preserve the apostolic tradition? To make sure that the apostles had the, um, the message to go on? Was it to encourage Christians to follow Jesus in the midst of suffering? Well, it was during a time of suffering and it definitely would encourage believers if they were to read during suffering what Christ did. Stein says that no purpose can be demonstrated from the text itself. So in the 60s, there was suffering and the Christian suffering led to the non-Christians wanting to know why they were dying for their faith. So I would go with C, to challenge non-Christians to believe in and follow Jesus. Why do I say that? Because in chapter 1, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Did you have a screen for that? Uh, It's on your handout. So, so chapter 1, he uh, explains that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning. This is what happened. So now you also need to repent. You need to believe in this person, in this man. So does it encourage Christians? Yes. But primarily, the primary purpose was it was written to the Romans so that they would believe. Now we get to this messianic secret that Mike is wondering about so much. The idea of the messianic secret arose toward the end of the 19th century. The question about it is, Why did Jesus tell certain people not to tell the world who he was? (laughs) And, And the accusation is that Christ never told anybody who he was in Mark, that he kept it a secret, that this was some kind of Gnosticism, some kind of secret knowledge that you had to have in order to be saved. But is that what the text shows? First, we have the demons. Chapter 1, verses 32 through 34, where Jesus casts out the demons. Uh, Verse 34, and he the second part, and he was permitting, he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So he was telling the demons to be quiet. And why would he tell that to the demons? The demons. Okay, in the culture of that day, to speak someone's name means that you have authority over them, right? So, the demons were trying to, to have a power grab with Jesus. If he casts them out, then they speak his name, then all those listening would be like, oh, he has some kind of association with these, they, uh, he's subordinate to them in some way. Christ didn't want that to happen. Christ didn't want his ministry to be viewed in association with the demons. Does that make sense?
1: No. Because he had, I mean, you said he he didn't have authority over the demons. I mean, that's the way it came
0: out. Okay, so if in that culture, in the Roman culture, if you speak, if I say Mike, if I can speak your name, that means I have authority over you. Right? And the demons were doing that. You are the Christ, you are the Son of God. right? So the, this is a power grab by the demons. They're trying to establish authority over Christ. And Christ is telling them, no, you can't do that, be quiet. So that In that culture, that's what that was.
1: Well, okay, if, you, if you go to Mark 1, 40-45, what I've always noticed is everybody obeys Christ except man. Hmm. the demons have to obey animals obey everything obeys except man and if you look at 40-45 through he cleanses a leper and says don't say anything but go to the priest and offer yourself up for the cleansing but he went and talked about it freely so that Jesus could not do any more there
0: right so that's that's the next one so uh, before we get to that in chapter 1 Verse 27, all these people were amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. So Christ is there. He's healing. He's teaching with authority. And these demons are trying to have this power grab. Okay. And Jesus tells them to shut up. Essentially, um, you're not, you're not in charge. Right. And they, they obey. Before that, they they were saying you are the Christ. Right. That's what, that's what they're saying. They continually say that. And he tells them to be quiet because he doesn't want his ministry to be associated with demons. And then, uh, chapter one, verse forty-four, we move on to the lepers. These lepers were uh, the leper was cleansed, and this points back to Leviticus chapters thirteen and fourteen, where if a leper is cleansed, it can only be done by the power of God. God is the only one who can heal. And Jesus told this leper to go to the priests. Why? Because they would have known this law from Leviticus. They would have understood it. And they would have had to uh, exclaim, they would have had to understand that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh because only God can heal leprosy. And did this guy do that? No. He disobeyed. And uh, like Lance said, he, he spread the news. And Jesus couldn't even teach there anymore. He had to move on because uh, everyone was in on him trying to get this healing. So he couldn't teach anymore. And this message to the priests was lost. Because this man disobeyed. We also have the, uh, in chapter 5, verse 43, the synagogue official's daughter. She's healed. Jesus gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. So just a little added information there. But he told them that not to tell uh, anyone about this, what happens. Why? Because this synagogue official could not give a complete and accurate description of who Christ is. Remember, the idea to the Jews was that Christ, the Messiah, was going to come in and overthrow? Well, Christ didn't want that idea uh, exclaimed, right? He wanted, to, he had to teach the Jews who he was, why he came, as opposed to their distorted view of who the Messiah was. And the synagogue official was not able to give this complete, accurate statement of Christ being the Messiah. So, rather than say anything, he tells them, just don't, don't tell anyone about this. Again, in chapter 7, verse 36, the deaf man. Uh, chapter 7, verse 36, and he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. So Lance is right. They, the humans disobey. But where are they? They're in the region of Decapolis here. They didn't know who Jesus was. And so they would have mixed who Christ is with their own pagan religious beliefs. And Christ didn't want that, that distorted view of him again. So he told them not to tell who he was. But did Christ always tell them that? Did he always say, don't? Tell who I am. This is some kind of secret knowledge that you have to have. No. Chapter 5, verse 18, says, And and he was getting into the boat. Jesus was getting in the boat. And the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And Christ did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. So this man at this time this is the opposite case. Christ tells him to go tell who he is. Why? Because this man had an under a, an accurate understanding of Israel's God, an accurate understanding of who Christ is. So he would have portrayed it the correct way. So Christ was, was a
1: Gentile. Yeah. difference in what he says go tell your people what the Lord has done because you're not even a Jew but the Jews they're supposed to go to the priest and do their rites for the cleansing that the Lord has given them they, they're supposed to know that right so that's why he does different things I believe
0: yeah yeah and and he would have been able to give an accurate description of who he was so uh, it wouldn't have been distorted as well and we have also these the disciples chapter 8 chapter 8 verse 29 30 and he um, Christ He says to Peter, or He says to His disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to Him, You are the Christ. And He warned them to tell no one about Him. Why? Because even the disciples still didn't have a right understanding of the things of God, of why Jesus came, of who He really was. And that was until later. Chapter 9, 9 and 10, the Transfiguration, where they even tell Christ, you know, we'll set up tents for you. And chapter 9, 31 and 32. Again, he was teaching them that he must die. Verse 32, But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So they didn't understand rightly who he was. But it is wrong to say that in Mark's gospel, there is never an explicit statement from Jesus that he was the Christ. Jesus did say it. Turn to chapter 14. Chapter 14, Christ did say who he was. Starting in verse 60. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls uh, from the high priest came. Uh, No, that's not right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 60. Sorry. I'm back. Uh, 14 verse 60. Yeah. The high priest stood, stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, do you not answer? What are these men testifying against you? So they had a wrong understanding, but he kept silent because they had a wrong understanding Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So he's quoting Psalm 110. And then verse uh, 63 and 64, we have this. uh, He's tearing his clothes and they're pretty much saying that he's blaspheming. What What more do we need to say? Also, the beginning of Mark. The beginning of Mark is questioned as to, you know, why, uh, where the title is. What's the purpose? Again, but the beginning is really the title of the book. The question is, um, is is it just a heading of the prologue or is it the actual title? Verse 3. He has his, it does it go through verse 3, which is the announcement? Does it go through verse 8, which is the baptism? Or 13, the wilderness? Or 15, where he begins preaching? We have, so the question is, is the beginning of Mark the title or the prologue? Right. So the title of the book, I would say, is verse 1 the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because you go on to chapter 8, verse 29, where Peter affirms that Christ is the Son of God. And then, and that's Mark's the middle, right? Chapter 8, 29. Peter affirms it. And then at the end, we see that He is the Son of God. We see how He died chapter 15 verse 39 it it ties it together this title ties it together chapter 15 verse 39 when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last he said truly this man was the son of god this goes back to verse 37 where Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This centurion has seen many individuals crucified. He's seen many individuals die. Death on the cross is by suffocation. It's a small last breath. You're out of breath. Normal men... Do not die with a loud shout as their last breath. The centurion is saying that he is the Son of God. And then the uh, last interpretive issue, real quick, is the ending of Mark. The ending of Mark, which is chapter 16, 9 through 20. This ending was added later. It's not on any of the original uh, manuscripts. But there's nothing in here that contradicts any other part of Scripture. He did appear later to the 11. He did... uh, The apostles did have signs and wonders in Acts. But why did he end it in verse 8? Verse 8 says, "...they went out and fled..." Uh, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. It's kind of an abrupt ending, right? But what is this saying? This is the beginning of the gospel. Now the disciples have to continue on with it and spread it to the whole world. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. You need to follow Him you need to believe in him. You need to believe in what he has done. Believe that he is the Son of God. So that ra- wraps up our overview of Mark. So how did we get the where did nine plus come? Like nine where did twenty. That, yeah, when did that it was it was later uh, added later by the I don't know scribes? Question is Nine why. Twenty are not
1: in some of the earlier manuscripts that are that are found. So, question. Yeah. Is. Oh, the the
0: question is, why was it added? It was added because verse eight is a very abrupt stop, and doesn't make sense to end a book that way. But maybe Mark intended to end it that way, to bring. Uh, his book is very fast-paced. Immediately. We're at place, we're at place, we're going, we're going. There's people crowding in all the time. And he just ends abruptly. And later on, he said, this is too abrupt. We need to finish this off. We need to cl- add a closing here to this gospel. And so they did. And these are four
1: of the eight paragraphs that are not contained also in Matthew and Luke. Is that
0: right. Yeah, there's three.
1: Yeah,
0: three.
1: Well, there's, there's four here. So okay. They're not contained in either Matthew or Luke. So about, about, this is where people like lick serpents
0: and stuff like that in Kentucky. And this is where they get that from. Well, the, the, yeah, all right. All right, so this has been an overview of the Gospel of Mark. We looked at the relationship between the Gospels, the introduction. We looked at several of the major themes and the purpose, the structure, how it's geographical in nature. Jesus is here, and then here, and then here. Um, Some good resources, if you'd like to dive in more, and then several of the interpretive problems. All right, let's pray as we move on to the main service. Dear Father, Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your truth, we thank you for this gospel that uh, you've written through Mark that uh, shows us the humanity of Christ, how he did the work of Yahweh. He came to be your servant and do your work. That people would trust in you. Lord, be with us now as we go into the main service. Prepare our hearts to receive your truth there, to apply it to our lives, that we may become more like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.